Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, your busy business boss, executive, strategist, and transformational leader, whose mission on this show is to educate, engage, and energize the global community on topics of sustainability and ESG. A couple of weeks ago, I shared an interview I did with the Energy Pipeline podcast, hosted by the fabulous Jordan Yates and representatives from Caterpillar. This week, another amazing and seasoned fellow podcaster, Joe Battier, interviewed me for his show, Energy Transition Solutions, which is sponsored by AWS. I had a blast talking to Joe, and the conversation was relevant to our mission here on ESG Energized. I hope you enjoy the episode and add Joe's show to your listening list as well. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Delfina Govia. I, did I say that wrong? You No, you didn't. No. You got it. Okay, I got it. She is an expert in corporate sustainability. She is a strategist and transformational leader. She is also fellow podcast host, host of the ESG Energized podcast on the Oil & Gas Global Network. Today, we are going to talk about corporate sustainability, more specifically looking at decarbonization. How do you go about decarbonizing, whether you are a large company, medium-sized company, or small company. So with that, I feel like I'm starting to ramble. So Delfina, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background. Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> you, can, you can keep it short. I'm going to keep it real short. Um, extensive Four decades in the oil and gas industry started off as a roustabout on a drilling rig in 1979. And fast forward to 2023, here I am. So I've, I've done my two full careers uh, in both in the energy industry and in consulting. And my life now is all about helping other organizations get to where they need to be. How's that? That is great. And that's a, <laughs> it's always fun. And I, I think it's important to hear and get that understanding of seeing people who started out seeing the boots on the ground, yeah. doing the field work, understanding what it takes from the, from the base level of practicality. How do you actually do any type of energy project all the way up to corporate strategy then and thinking about from those boots on the ground to how do we actually help the entire company? So I'm, I'm very excited to have you on the show and, and helping everybody understand this is not just a, this is not just an academic understanding of, no. of pluses and minuses. This is seeing it from, from, from the foundation of the industry. What so, you don't realize, Joe, is you said, you said two really important things there. Um, and, and I'm going to attack those uh, right away and, and take the microphone away from you. <laughs> um, the, the first is the, the topic of boots on the ground, right? And for boots on the ground, that's part of the challenges of organizations that are, that are thinking about 
decarbonization, ESG, sustainability, is having somebody that's in that leadership role that's really going to be able to affect a transformation, that it's going to get people to adopt whatever it is that the organization really needs to do, right? And that is difficult when you're not one of them, right? So it's you can go out and hire somebody that's some sort of expert in the compliance issues and regulations, the regulatory environment, and what's going on in different governments, and the laws and the rules and the IRA, and bleggity, 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 bleg. But if you don't really understand what people are doing on a day-to-day basis on the ground that are, is required for them to get their job done, you're going to have a really hard time. And you know, at some point in the podcast, I can give you examples of some brilliant approaches uh, from some, some folks in, in the, the sustainability world, brilliant people inside of brilliant companies. Um, you know, we, can, we can get into that at some point. But the other thing that you, that you said was, right at the beginning, you, you asked the question, how do you decarbonize, right? And the answer to that is very carefully and judiciously. Hmm. This is not this is not a joke. This is very serious stuff that people are going to judge you by and you being being corporations and what you do and how you're putting your best foot forward and the efforts that you're making. This is a global conversation and people have opinions and especially in the oil industry as you and I well know, we've, we've spent our lives dedicated to this industry. We're the big, bad, evil oil companies. We're the dirty oil companies that are the cause of all this horrible climate change. And nobody's going to think of us as anything but Darth Vader, right? So you've got, if you're going to do this, whether you're a big, bad oil company or you're some other type of even a small startup company that has nothing to do with the oil industry you got to approach this thing judiciously and effectively, and it's no joke. Yep, absolutely. And I want to touch on that Darth Vader comment just real quick, and then we're going to get into the questions. But I think Darth Vader is this, I, I realize it, he is an, an archetype and everybody, and he's part of this big storyline in Star Wars, but his his character development of going from supposed... Supposed savior as Anakin, which which rightfully so, oil and gas has brought us into modern life, but now you see and are judging and and putting the blame on oil and gas for everything. And and I don't want to get into that. We're gonna ignore that. We're just going to to take the fact of what what the the common discourse is that oil and gas is the bad guy and taking that seeing into the future of what we're talking about here and, and what, what you see in the geothermal industry and what you see kind of abroad and, and larger scale oil and gas has the money oil and gas has the, the skill sets and the technology and the technical expertise to bring us into the next phase of, of what the energy industry is and, and ultimately to make something that is to decarbonize and, and to make what you, what everybody thinks they want. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, it, it exactly follows Darth Vader. Cause in the end, 
I guess it's not the end, but in the end of his role <laughs> in the Star Wars saga, mm-hmm. he does turn back to the good side. He does. Yeah. He does. But... But I'm just saying, I'm, I, 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 I love that, the way you took that forward. But I do want to say that my, my Darth Vader comment is that I believe that we really aren't Darth Vader. We're just viewed as Darth Vader. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even so, to your point, Darth Vader becomes good in the end. And hopefully if we do a better job of showing what it is that we're doing in this industry, people will see that we really have a good side. And to yes. your point, we are absolutely bringing the innovation to the world that's required to get us to where we need to be. Yep. Well, with that, I do want to jump into this larger conversation that we originally were planning, this this idea of decarbonization and how do you do it from, from the corporate side, looking at your large company, how do you, or, or really your company, how do you actually decarbonize? I want to first start very high level and make sure we're all on the same page of understanding carbon emissions, that being this idea of scope one emissions, scope two emissions, and scope three emissions. What are those, and, and how, how do you account for those as a corporate entity? Okay, so um, scope one, scope two, scope three, great question, great question. Uh, there are people that I work with on a regular basis, and no matter how many times I explain scope one, scope two, scope three, they don't get it unless I have it written down and stick it in front of them, and they, and they use it as a, as a cheat sheet so that they can follow along. So hopefully your, your listeners will bookmark this podcast and refer back to it. First, one thing um, let's get started with. When we're talking about uh, scope one, scope two, scope three, emissions, uh, em- emissions are uh, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon is a component. So when we're talking about decarbonizing, it's not 100% the, the reduction of GHG, but decarbonization falls within the, the GHG category, scope one, scope two, scope three. Okay, scope one. Scope one for organizations is everything and anything that you are doing inside of your organization to directly cause emissions to hit the atmosphere. So if you have a manufacturing facility and you're burning fuel in that manufacturing uh, plant that is releasing emissions to the atmosphere, that is scope one. So what are you doing in your operation directly to cause the emissions? Scope two is generally associated with your electricity, but more broadly in your power sources. So if you, whatever power source you are using, that you are procuring that service, that power from a company, if that company is emitting to the atmosphere that is your scope too. So let's say you are procuring your electricity from a company whose power plant is burning coal and that coal is emitting to the atmosphere. Their scope one is that emission, which is your scope two. So it's your indirect. Now scope three is where it gets a little dicey. Scope three and very broad, and that's why people get a little confused about it. Scope three is 
the emissions that are caused by your partners, suppliers in your value chain and the effects of your operations, you're procuring, you're getting products, services from other organizations that are creating emissions. So that's your scope three. And so for companies that are paying attention to their scope three, that's the biggest challenge is how do you influence the emissions of somebody that you're doing business with when you have no direct control over it? That's where it becomes difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very helpful to understand. I like this manufacturing analogy. So you've got the manufacturing facility, mm-hmm. anything that is actually essentially happening within the doors of the facility, that is directly your responsibility. That would be scope one. The electricity that comes in to make sure you can do that manufacturing, that is scope two? Yes. And so let me, let me take a stab at scope three then. If you are buying raw materials and then buying, say, boxes to ship your product, are those, those, the companies who give you those items, are that, that's your scope three emissions? That's, yes. Their scope one is your scope three. Mm. So let's say, for example, the easiest one for people to, to get their, to wrap their heads around is, let's say I'm a manufacturing facility and I manufacture pens and then I need to take those pens and I need to ship them somewhere from my manufacturing facility to a store where they're going to be sold. I'm really simplifying this. The shipping, moving those pens across the highway in a truck to get to that store, that tr- you're buying that trucking service from Joe's Trucking Service. You hire Joe's Trucking Service to deliver those. The truck is emitting into the atmosphere, that's your scope three. It's Joe's Trucking Services scope one, it is your scope three. But it gets even more, transportation is really easy to understand. Let's say you're a company that is a, uh, that you provide, you make any of our, of the well-known brands for food products, right? Let's say you're I'm not going to mention any names because, you know, some people may have preferences for one brand over another. But let's say you have a very well-known brand of ketchup that that you buy, right? And to make ketchup, you need tomatoes. So the farmer, the agricultural uh, person, community company that grows those tomatoes, if in their operations they are emitting any so if there there's any sorts of emissions you're buying those tomatoes to make your ketchup and they're buying them from some farmer if that farmer has emissions that's your scope 3 mm-hmm. and if you're buying something that's produced from uh, let's say dairy let's say you're a cheese producer processor and you're buying dairy products those cows that's a lot of emissions have a lot of emissions yeah yeah and it's not carbon Right, it's no. the, the yeah. methane that comes comes off of of wow. that. So I know. So 
as you can start to see, I can see the your our audience can't can't see this, but I can see the look on your face going, "Oh my God, this is bigger than I expected." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of moving parts there. Yeah, and it seems like it it depending on what industry you're in, yeah. it can be more difficult to really understand, especially that scope three component. Absolutely. So what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? And I, I think that that specifically thinking about scope three, I am very curious. And, and, and one thought that I would like you to, to, to postulate on with me is the whole idea of the, of the, the driving and transportation and thinking of like a vertically integrated company. Is it better to try and just bring as much of that under one roof and call it all scope one or is it or how do you how do you really tackle the the idea of understanding your emissions so that you can you can reduce your emissions ah okay uh so i'm not going to give you a direct answer to that because it's not that simple <laughs> even though you're asking you're asking what is an intelligent simple question but it's not that simple um i had a a guest on my show recently, and we talked about this, and I've also talked about some other folks with this, where we've talked about the topic of who's going to bear the cost of all this sustainability and carbon reduction and emissions reductions and blah, 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 blah. This has got to be good business, right? Yeah. Because we, especially here in the United States of America, and greatest country on earth, people, um, we have, we live in a capitalistic society. So you have got to approach sustainability, decarbonization, whatever you want that's underneath this topic, you have got to approach it from an intelligent economic uh, standpoint. And so if you're going to look at, it could be, you could ask the question, well, if I could bring all of these services using transportation as an excellent example, if I just had my own trucks and what have under, underneath my own uh, umbrella, then I can control it directly. So what is the advantage of controlling it directly versus what you give up bringing that in-house? And then what are all of the inefficiencies that you're going to have that, and the efficiencies that you're giving up? Because somebody who is specialized in transportation knows how to do that more efficiently and more effectively. So you could, you could make the argument, if you brought that in-house you're going to start operating more inefficiently than you were before, and hence your GHG emissions are going to go up before you can bring them down. So this, you've got to approach it from a holistic perspective. But I like the way that you're thinking, because let's take this a step further. How do you actually approach this? If you recognize, if you recognize that scope three is basically what happens in your supply chain, We've just established, you pointed out very effectively, that you don't control the different aspects of your supply chain. You can only influence different aspects of your supply chain. Then how do you approach sustainability, GHG emissions? Let's just use emissions reduction. Let's just start with yep. that. How do you approach that in the most efficient and effective manner? The way to do it is by taking a look at your entire supply chain from end to end. 
look at the macro process of supply chain. So let's break it down to supply chain 101 is plan, buy, make, move, sell. Plan, buy, make, move, sell. I plan what I'm going to produce. I'm going to buy all the raw materials that I need to, to make the, I'm going to make them. Then I have to move it somewhere to the end point where I sell it. What companies are doing, and I'm arguing today that what they're doing incorrectly is they're attacking their supply chain in silos. They're attacking the pieces and they're saying, all right, I'm looking at my, my emissions just in where, how I make stuff. I'm looking at my emissions just in the procurement of my raw materials. I'm looking at my emissions just in the transportation component of it. If you look at the supply chain holistically, the decisions that you make starting with plan in, in the planning phases of what you're, what you're going to do, if you look at starting there and then look at it from a broader perspective where you're sub-optimizing the pieces, you can optimize the whole. So I might make a better decision when I'm procuring my raw materials that will impact the transportation. And let me give you an example. I'll break it down as simple as possible so people can get their heads wrapped around it. Let's say I am procuring, let's go back to those cows and or the tomatoes and I'm procuring that raw material. Let's say I have identified that there are three different farmers that I can buy my dairy products from that I'm going to then uh, process into whatever I'm going to sell to the market. Mm -hmm. And farmer number one is, has got the best score for the lowest or the best score, lowest emissions. And so I'm going to say, Ooh, I'm going to get my stuff from him because he's got the lowest emissions. But what if farmer number one is located in Anchorage, Alaska? Okay, there's probably no cows in Anchorage, Alaska. There's probably just nothing but moose up there. But I'm making my point. Yeah. Let's say that farmer is in Anchorage, Alaska, but your factory is in Houston, Texas. And let's say Mr. Farmer number three, his emissions may be not as good as farmer number one, but farmer number three is up in Dallas. Yeah. He, you may give up some there, but on the transportation piece of getting those products to your factory in Houston, you're going to get a better result. If you sub-optimize in one part, you might be able to optimize across the whole. So organizations need to start looking at their entire value chain to make more intelligent decisions. That is just step one. So I'm going to shut up and let you ask questions. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that is really important to understand, especially because... As you're as you're seeing it there, I think it the way you explain that is really is really helpful because you would think that we want to buy the the lowest emission raw product, but if you if you pull one lever, which is that that raw material lever, now you are you are are essentially limiting or you're forcing other levers into a box. And that is what that transportation point is, is that you could, 
you could have the you could find the highest efficiency transporter, but because of how far you have to now transport, you have a certain limit to how low you can actually go. So it's it's not a let's pull every single lever from the front to the end. It is how do we pull all the levers at once and get them all to as low as possible? Calibrate it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that that's actually um, uh, a good a good way to 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 describe it is the calibration, you know, of of the entire um, value chain. And just to just to make sure, I just want to make another point. Another component to this is to back to your original question is how do companies go about doing this? You also have to take take a step back and say part of that calibration is a weighting exercise. So. There are some organizations where their scope three from, let's say, transportation is monstrous. And their scope three from the actual raw materials themselves is not so, is not so significant. But many organizations, like I was using product companies as an example, that, that uh, food product companies, most of those food product companies, the majority of their scope three emissions are actually in the procurement of those raw materials. They come from those those agricultural mm. um, uh, purchases that they make, yeah. right? And so, with that being, that'll be like eighty percent or something, some ridiculous amount. And their transportation meet piece might be less than ten percent. Wow! So, calib- now you see where you've got to calibrate all of this. So, the first thing that organizations need to do is say, okay, what are my scope three emissions? Where are my scope three emissions? And let's figure out where what's the biggest, what's the smallest, and we call this stakeholder analysis in the game, right? Mm-hmm. Who are your stakeholders? Who are your contributors? What is the analysis? Everybody that has an input, and then everybody that is that is interested in your output. Yeah. So you've got to take a look at that universe. Yeah, and I think it's, I I, I didn't think about that calibration point as much, but I know that there there's conversation that always occurs when anybody makes any type of environmental announcement. Is this greenwashing or is this actual change? And I think that point that you just made, you could see somebody like a, a food processor come in and say, look, we're going to start doing last mile delivery by electric vehicles. But that last mile delivery may actually be just greenwashing saying, Oh, this is an easy thing we can do. It's a small investment and it, it gives us good press, but it doesn't actually change anything. <laughs> it doesn't actually change anything. Right. So technically it's not greenwashing, but you're going to get accused of it. Right. Yeah. You, you, and that you make a really great point, Joe is companies have got, have got to be careful of doing anything that makes it look like they're greenwashing. It's a, a huge, huge topic. And that's why I said at the beginning of this, of this entire discussion is that you've got to do this judiciously, yep. right? You've got to be really careful about what you do because, believe it or not, people are watching. I have, a, I have one friend. She's the chief sustainability officer for a very well-noted company in, in our industry. And something got past her. Somebody, she was building her sustainability report. And whoever was the consulting company was that was helping her build it and write it, it's a it's a huge process, by the way. It's just like it's just like uh, preparing your your annual report your for uh, yep. 
the investors, right? It takes just as long, um, just a long amount of time. It takes the entire year worth of processing of the, all the data and the information. Then it takes another three to six months to pull it all together. So you finally have your darn annual report ready. The sustainability report's the same thing. And this poor girl, God bless her, um, she, something got past her and it was some little thing about water usage. And she, she didn't even realize it was in there. Wow. And she got some investor was like, what are you guys doing for water? She's like, what, what? That snuck into my report. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. It, believe me, it is ridiculous. The watchdogs that are out there. So that's why you got to know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. With with that, I think it I think I, I've got another question about. When you're talking about what is what is most important or what is easiest or, or I guess when you think about all overall emissions reductions, then with that example we gave, there's there's an easy fix that has impact, but it may be a small impact versus something like changing your raw material supplier that could have major impact, but also takes major work to put in and to change and to, to fix. When we're talking about this from a corporate standpoint, how do you communicate and how, how do you even, how do you even make that decision on which one is the step to take today or which one is the, is the right step to take? That's a great question. Um, and there's, there's a lot wrapped up in that question. The first answer is, the way I like to look at things is you can't boil the ocean. You should never boil the ocean. But every organization that puts a sustainability office in place. What they have to do is they've got to pull together their inventory. So step one world is pull together your inventory and know where it all is. Then go about, to your point, the prioritization based on certain criteria. What is hard, what is easy, what is the most impactful, what is the least impactful, and put together, and of course the way I do this is I have uh, decision criteria and prioritization criteria where I throw everything into a matrix and then start to see what's my low-hanging fruit, what are my quick wins, what are must-haves. I've got to have this, right? Because it has incredibly high impact, but it's also incredibly hard to do, but you've got to do it, right? That's a must-have. Yeah. I've got to get it done. And then you're going to have a bunch of stuff in your must-have category. You're going to have a bunch of stuff in your low-hanging fruit category. And a low-hanging fruit is going to be something that is super easy to do but doesn't have much impact. That's what I define as a low-hanging fruit. So just your point. Super easy to do, doesn't really do much, but it's low-hanging. A quick win is something that's super easy to do and has high impact, right? Mm. So you're going to have a bunch of stuff there. You're going to have a bunch of stuff in low-hanging fruit. You're going to have a bunch of stuff in must-have, which is really hard stuff, but it has high impact. 
you take a look at all your stuff, put it all into your, into your framework, put it all into your category and say, ah, all right, I'm now going to build a roadmap, an execution roadmap where I'm going to be able to start attacking these things in a way that it does not overwhelm my organization. Put it in a plan and then start going at it little by little. An added component to this, which is another lens to look at it and how do I decide, you know, which of the things in quick wins category and which of the things in the must-have category, how do I make that decision if I have to choose between two things? What is the most significant to your stakeholders? And who are your stakeholders? Are your stakeholders your customers? Are you a, a product company that your customers are purchasing your product and it's really important for them? It, are your stakeholders your investors? Let's say you're an organization that, high, that relies heavily on outside, you're a heavily leveraged company, and those investors can create hell for you, right? Because yeah. you're not going to have the money that you need to operate. So a particular item might be extremely important to them. Let's say something is really important. You're, you're operating within a government, a political environment. Hello, California, right? Uh, right? Yeah. If, if you're operating California, or let's take a look at oil companies that are up in Colorado, zero flaring. So take a look at those things based on your stakeholders, and that's also a component of how you make a decision in what you're putting in putting on that roadmap and then executing in a, in an organized way, planning, phasing and coordinating. I have ways to look at all of this stuff. So let's get it. Keep it organized. Yeah, that is, that is really helpful. And, and thinking about the stakeholders ultimately is, is so important because they are the ones who are ultimately going to say what, what they think is important. And I, when you brought up California, my first thought was the low carbon fuel standards mm -hmm. because anybody that I talk to who works in energy, it is almost like they are trying to find a way to, uh, to, to meet those standards. And even when it's somebody like a solar company, mm -hmm. you can talk to a solar company who may be able to provide green electricity to the refinery to ultimately somehow add in additional opportunity for the low carbon fuel standard. So it is that alone because of the California stakeholder, they ultimately, oh, okay. They ultimately drive this, this value. And we are back. We were, interrupted i think we so doesn't matter we are back sorry if that sounded a little funny and if i didn't fully finish my thought uh if you want me to finish that thought send me an email at ets at oggn.com and and we can have a conversation about it but back to delphina i, I i've got a few more questions bring it the the um the big question here, something that I've been thinking about this whole time, and I, I continually go back to this with people, but it's, it's, I guess, I don't know if it's a conversation or not, but when we think about scope one, scope two, scope three, big picture, 
if we, as a company, if you were at zero scope one emissions, if you made that your focus and everybody got to scope one, zero emissions, wouldn't that negate scope two and scope three? Like then wouldn't we all be at net zero emissions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Because my scope two and scope three are somebody else's scope one. And my scope one, if you're a power company or if you're um, a transportation company or if you're an agricultural company, I mean, you know, my scope one is somebody else's scope three. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. So what's the mind blowing, right? Yeah. So what's the problem with thinking in that way? Why why should ah, we not only great, tackle scope one? That's a great question. That is a great question, and that is where you have a an an economic and even a social imbalance, right? So if you are creating scope one emissions in a an underprivileged society and you are burning wood and you or or coal or something to keep yourself warm or to cook your food you're not even a company you're just an individual right and or if you are a small company and you're in an underprivileged uh, community, and I'm really taking this to the extreme, you don't really have a choice. You're surviving. You're surviving. So who the heck am I? Some first world nation uh, snobby sustainability person to tell you that you can't eat or you can't stay warm because I'm worried about global warming. You're worried about staying alive. Right? So it's a matter of economic disparity, and that's in the extreme. So, of course, I'm just going to answer really quick what do you do in those situations? There are companies out, organizations out there, not just companies, nonprofit organizations, um, and organizations looking to create a positive uh, or negative carbon impact. That's, that's the right way to say it, the negative carbon impact, providing uh, re uh, renewable energy cookstoves to underprivileged people in underprivileged communities, right? So there's, there's wonderful, wonderful things going on in that regard, but that's a little bit of a side note. So let's take it to smaller companies. I am a small uh, trucking outfit. I don't have huge, huge uh, pockets. I don't have a lot of money to go and buy. So let me give, let me give you some fun numbers, a fun, some fun numbers. A Class A tractor trailer might cost you $150,000, right? I, I don't know exactly because I'm not a trucker. So Class A tractor trailer might cost you $150,000. But I want to buy the EV model. That EV model might be $50,000 more. Just like when you're buying a, a Tesla versus yeah. a regular gasoline engine car, you pay more yeah. for the Tesla. I mean, I know the prices are coming down. Don't call into the show and say the prices are coming down. We don't want to hear it. We know it. So you're going to pay a little bit more. Okay, uh, that's hard. That's hard. But let's say you want to go to a hydrogen-fueled uh, Class A truck. Then you're talking six, seven $700,000. Who the heck is going to spend that kind of money? 
Yeah. And there's a new product on the market. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say the names because it's not about plugging other companies. But there's a brilliant startup that they've invented this. Uh, carbon ca emission capturing device that they stick on the back of tractor trailers to absolutely suck out every last amount of carbon dioxide from the truck's emissions and they capture it the cost the price tag on that thing is $150,000 itself so I'm a trucker that has a $150,000 rig then I got to go spend $150,000 for this contraption that's going to capture all of my my CO2 emissions it's like who the heck has that kind of money when you're a small business Right? So it's all about economic disparity. And so your question, as you're going to ask me, is so what do we do? Larger organizations have absolutely recognized that it is their responsibility to put together programs that help smaller companies get to where they need to be, whether it be financing options, whether it be better pricing options, we're starting to understand if you're really dedicated to this and you've got the means to do so, that you have got to help the smaller guys, the littler guys, get to where you want them to be and the world needs them to be. So this is absolutely, we're all in this together and how can we help? Now, have you got another question or do you let me, are you going to let me bring that back around to the oil industry? Yeah, no, I think definitely let's bring that back around to the oil industry because I think that's a that's a very good point. And and I, I think my question to tee that up to make sure you you include this is how do so I everybody knows I say it almost every podcast. I work at a small company. We are a startup. We my day job is doing geothermal exploration. How do we like how would Tavera find these opportunities how do we start seeing this how do we how do we get involved how does a small company get involved from the from the oil and gas side but then also more in general are there ways to find these opportunities so you're asking a once again a brilliantly broad question <laughs> that i could probably attack from a number of different angles um, but i'm going to i'm going to answer the question uh, in two ways one is, how does a small organization um, mitigate their own emissions? And the other one is, um, how do you actually get involved in general? How do you contribute? Yeah. So let's start with a small company, because Devera doesn't have any uh, scope one emissions, right? You're not emitting everything, but your employees driving their cars to work. Maybe you guys don't have offices. I, I don't know. Do you guys have an office? We do not, no. You do We're not. fully you're, remote. You're fully remote. Okay. But if you did have an office, you're a small company and you did have an office, then your employees driving to work yep. are your emissions, emitting. right? They're emitting, yep. right? And that's, that's kind of your responsibility. So is, you know, how, do you, how do you attack that? So starting is, I'm, I'm going to go back to exactly what I said before, which is I don't care if you're a small company, I don't care if you're Walmart, the largest company revenue-wise in the world. I don't care who you are. You've got to start by understanding what your, your carbon footprint is or what your emissions footprint is. You've got to understand what that is. And then from there, again, how, what can I do to attack those emissions if you have some sort of goal to be net zero? And again, focusing what, on what your stakeholders 
are demanding of you. A lot of small companies, just as big companies, provide services, small companies provide their services into big companies, and big companies nowadays, when you, for you to do business with them, will send you a survey that says, okay, I need you to answer these questions about your carbon footprint, about your emissions that you have to answer so that we can determine whether or not we want to do business with you. It's part of, it's wow. becoming a standard operating procedure. When you get an RFP, an RFQ, whatever, they now are attacking these surveys. And there are questions on there that are really important to these companies, and they want to make sure that you're going to be somebody that they want to do business with. So that's wow. one thing. So understanding. So I don't care if you're small. I don't care if you're big. You've got to first understand what your carbon footprint is, right? Then how does a company get involved? I think one of the most exciting things that we are seeing in the world today is companies are putting their money where their mouth is by making tangible and tangential investments that are providing opportunity to have a negative carbon impact. They're investing in technologies. Bigger companies are investing in technologies where they them, it's, not, it's not themselves, they're not working on their own, but they're investing in technologies that can be put out there in the market within the industry that others can take advantage of, right? So finding ways to have an impact beyond the scope of your own uh, four walls is really exciting. And that's where I'm actually going to bring it back to the oil industry, right? The energy industry, the huge, huge, huge investments, as a matter of fact, three times more money has been spent in the renewable space by in reducing carbon emissions by the oil companies than everybody else put together out there on the planet. Wow. Three times more just from us. Is anybody talking about that? No, we're still Darth Vader to the world. <laughs> Right? And so this, and how are they doing that? They're doing that by investing in the old term of alternative fuels, renewable energy, uh, tech startups. As a matter of fact, you and I are recording right here from the Canon on Britmore Road in Houston, Texas. The Canon is one of those startup environments, right? Yeah. There's companies, Shell is here, Chevron is here. The big oil companies are here and they're putting their money behind those innovations that are going to get us where to where we need to be. Yeah. Well, I think that is a, a good point to, to wrap up that part of the conversation on. Now I do have final questions. I ask these questions to all of my guests. You can take these however you want, move through them quickly, take your time, whatever you want to do. That first question is what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? The prize. Did you expect me to say anything else? Didn't even get to finish the question. <laughs> Actually, I now have, I have a new one. I have a new one. Um, it's called, uh, so, so everybody that's ever come to work for me, I've made them read the prize. You want to work in the oil industry, you want to work for me, you better you have, you better have freaking read this book, right? Um, but I have a new one that I make people read. The author is Tom Wyrick, who is the head of marketing for EDP Renewables. Tom wrote a brilliant book called we took the risk. It is the story. It is the story of renewables here in the United States and companies that took the risk to invest. 
absolutely brilliant read. Tom Wyrick, we took the risk. He prefers if you buy it from your, your local vendor, but it is definitely available on Amazon and you can get it in the same day. All right. We took the risk. Mm-hmm. I know. I have not read it yet, but you I should. need to. It's brilliant. I need to get onto that. Now, the next question, which has really been a, a conversation we've been having this whole time, but if there is something else that you want to add, if somebody doesn't listen to anything but the final questions, here it is. How do we get to net zero? Again, <laughs> carefully, judiciously. <laughs> intelligently um, the way we get to net re- zero what are, the, what are the key components the key components is are yes Delfina you speak English <laughs> the, key, <laughs> the key components are even though I do kind of speak it as a second language but that's alright your, your audience doesn't, need, doesn't know that um, first and foremost is understanding what that actually means for your organization. What is your carbon footprint? Um, you got to know it. You got to understand it, what it is, where it comes from. The second is know that you cannot, you will not. I don't care if you're the most powerful industry on the planet, which would be us, the oil industry. You cannot get there yourself. This is, crit- it is critical that we collaborate across companies, across industries, and across geographies. So you will see examples of governments teaming up to bring solutions to invest together in uh, startups, technologies that are going to advance this, the approach to the, the not the approach, the, uh, the, the trek, the journey towards net zero. We have got to invest, so it's going to take understanding what net zero means to your organization, really truly understanding it, work collaboratively with each other, and to actually put together an intelligent roadmap to get there. And that message about putting together an intelligent roadmap is not just to organizations. It's to the entire global community. We're talking about this this energy transition as if it's just the responsibility of the oil industry. Mm. Right? It's not. We We have to work together with governments. We have to understand that you're not just going to, okay, boom, everything's electric vehicles. There is a roadmap that needs to be constructed. So there's my answer. I like it. That is a good answer. Now, the final question, you actually get to ask me a question. When are we going to see geothermal become a more accepted and bigger solution to our energy transition, not problems, aspirations. I think we are already seeing it. There, 
in the past two years, I would say, you've seen large companies start making investments into geothermal startups. You've seen the number of geothermal startups grow exponentially. Granted, that means from five to 35, but you see this significant growth and it is, it is happening and, and you see that also happening not just in the US, but also in Europe. And you see, well, I would say you get interest and you, you, if you look, you can find people in, on every continent, except for Antarctica, interested in geothermal. Although Antarctica, you're, you're laughing right now, but Antarctica has some very beautiful, amazing active volcanoes. And I think that if we would have had some of the correct information, we probably would have moved where we developed all of our research bases in Antarctica to be more and better co-located because you, you have all of that great opportunity. That's a, that's a tangent. Not going to go down there, but I know somebody who will. (laughs) Well, with, with that idea, I would say in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see projects coming online. And as those projects come online, you will get more investment. As you get more investment, more projects. And five to 10 years, we're going to have a, a large amount of new geothermal. In 20 years, I would say it will become commonplace that new geothermal power plants are coming online year over year adding to the grid and more importantly adding to heating and cooling i think it's going to be it it i want geothermal to be a household name last year i think it will be a household name before the end of the decade before 2030 everybody will be saying geothermal i love the answer to that question and would you permit me to make a shameless plug for my alma mater, Cornell University, and the geothermal project that they have invested quite heavily in with tremendous success to eat that 800-acre campus using geothermal power. And a shout-out to Professor Jeff Tester and the team at Cornell for the work that they're doing there. Yep, I think, I think that's a great example, as a matter of fact, because nobody... Nobody thought that you could have geothermal east of the Mississippi, whereas now we are talking about it. Cornell is, is doing a great job. West Virginia has a potential resource, and they have a potential project. We are, we are pushing it forward. And Cornell is one of those great examples of earlier what you've talked about, collaboration and a holistic system. And, and hopefully I can get... Dr. Tester on the podcast to talk about it because it, it is a great example and, and has been a, a long time coming. Fantastic. Well, with that, Delphina, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, loved it. Let's get her done. All right. Well, thank you again for joining and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. 
If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. One of those is Delphina's ESG Energized podcast. So you can find that on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find out all of our other podcasts and stories and et cetera by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one question survey that I want you to fill out. If you go fill that out, we can send you some stickers. You can put that on your laptop, on your hard hat, on your bumper, really wherever you put stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email is ets at OGGN.com. If you're not into email, you can find me on LinkedIn and send me a message there. And remember, until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.